Thank you, our Father, for this unchanging word, this hope-giving word, this life-building word. What was written on this page about our Savior was true in the day it was written, and it is true today. It's an un- it, it's inerrant and unceasing in its accuracy and infinite in its application. For there is one truth in this text and so many ways that this text works into our hearts to transform us. And so we ask as we come to this text that you would enlighten us this morning, give us clarity to understand it accurately, precisely, and then might we not walk away from this text with either anger or apathy, but might we walk away from it with worship and delight. And in so doing, Father, would you change us? Change us so that we more accurately reflect our great Savior. Change us so that we are more fit as servants of the King to administer His life-giving gospel to those around us. So, Father, we commend ourselves to you. We need change, and this book has everything we need in order to be changed. So we thank you, and we commend ourselves to it in the name of Christ. Amen. We are well familiar with the Christmas stories, aren't we? We know about the appearance of the angel Gabriel to Zacharias and his, I was going to say communication to Elizabeth, I guess his written communication to Elizabeth because of his unbelief of angel Gabriel's message. We know about the appearance of Gabriel, not only to Zacharias, but to Mary and her astoundingly humble submission to the angel's message and her willingness to do this thing that has never been accomplished prior or ever since, a virgin carrying a child. We know about the story of the appearance of the angel to Joseph announcing Mary's pregnancy and inviting, compelling him to take Mary as his wife, to not divorce her as was his right, and to assume earthly fatherhood responsibilities over Jesus. We know about the story of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, Luke chapter 2, the astounding announcement to the angels. It's just a, it's a great story. We hear it every year in multiple different ways. We read it every year as we read our way through the Bible. Some of us have read this story or heard it read literally hundreds of times. This is a story we know well. In these stories, there are Old Testament quotations. There are hymns of praise. I love I love Luke because he just constantly explodes into hymns of praise. Uh, there are revelations about the nature of Jesus Christ. Uh, in this chapter that we read earlier, there are multiple fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy and Scripture. So we see the, the weaving of the Old Old Testament story into the New Testament story and how God's working all that together. We get to the end of, or near the end of, of Christ's childhood years, and it tells us in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus, the, excuse me, that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. She, she watched Jesus growing into manhood. And, and it was almost like she was transfixed in her own home by our, our Savior. Those are all great stories about Jesus. But we do well when we're coming to the story about Jesus to sometimes pay attention as well to the secondary characters in the story. Jesus is the prime focus as he needs to be. But there are others involved in the stories as well. And the narrators and the writers would have us to understand some things because they keep including other people into the account. We're to draw lessons from them. 
And that's really where I want to spend our time this morning in Matthew chapter 2. Because Matthew chapter 2 really is an interesting account after the birth of Jesus Christ. Because while the story is about Jesus, there really is almost no revelation about Jesus in this chapter. It's really about the others who come alongside and towards and are around Jesus that Matthew would have us to see. One commentator puts it this way. The primary purpose of this chapter is not to portray the king in his infancy and childhood. There is nothing in the chapter which describes Jesus himself. The leading aim is to indicate the reception given to the Messiah by the world. How will the world attend to the Messiah, the one who has come as king. This chapter really is about worship. This chapter is about the need to worship Christ. And it's about those who come around Christ, who are called to worship Christ. Some do, and some don't. What we're going to find in this chapter is this simple idea, that the infant Jesus was also infinitely sovereign king, who was worthy of all worship. He came as king to be manifested as one who is worthy of worship. And we're going to be spending our time this morning thinking about this idea of worshiping Christ. What does it mean to worship Christ? As we think about worship, I have come across several helpful definitions. John Frame in his book, Worship in Spirit and Truth, writes this, worship is the work of acknowledging the greatness of our covenant Lord. It is something we do. And it is honoring someone who is superior to ourselves. So it's something we do. And it's honoring to someone else. Another pair of writers says it this way. Worship is paying attention to God's revelation. Both special, the Bible, and general revelation. And then responding to it. Worship is revelation and response, understanding what God says and then responding to it. Stephen Charnock, the great Puritan, put it this way, and I'm going to give it to you because it's a Puritan. Worship is an act of the understanding, applying itself to the knowledge of the excellency of God and actual thoughts of his majesty It is also an act of the will whereby the soul adores and reverences his majesty, is ravished with his amiableness, embraces his goodness, enters itself into intimate communion with this most lovely object and pitches all his affections upon him. That's really helpful, but we don't talk that way. So let me simplify it. Worship is delighting in God and doing His will. To worship God is simply to say, I'm enraptured with Him. I'm captivated by Him. I love Him. I delight in Him. And I obey Him. It's an internal satisfaction in our hearts that results in transformed lives through obedience. Or said another way, to worship God is to delight in Him and to do what he says. We just, we just love him. And because we love him, we find ourselves compelled to do what he has revealed to us in his word. To worship God is to delight in him and to do what he says. That definition is going to be really helpful for us as we make our way through Matthew chapter 2 and see some contrasting responses of worship and non-worship to Jesus. The story of Jesus in this chapter is simply this. The infant Jesus was infinitely sovereign king who was worthy of worship. And in this chapter, in this section of the chapter, we're going to see three possibilities for worshiping Christ. Three possibilities for worshiping Christ. A lot of people around Christ. All the way through the early part of his life before he was born as he was born after he was born many people around Christ all of them being invited to worship him but not all of them did 
Consider one man in Matthew chapter 2, Herod, who wanted to be worshipped. Herod, who wanted to be worshipped. Here was a man who was around Jesus, who knew about Jesus, and who was being called to worship him. It's interesting, as you read these opening verses, there's a subtle interplay between King Herod and King Jesus. Verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. Now, who is Jesus? Matthew 1 tells us Jesus is the Messiah. That's the anointed one. Anointed what? Anointed as king. And so immediately in verse 1 of chapter 2, Matthew's setting up this dichotomy between King Jesus and King Herod. Again, verse 2, the Magi come. Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? And who is, who is he talking to? He's talking to, verse 3, Herod the king. And again, verse 6, the leader, religious leaders come to Herod, compelled to come to him by Herod. He asks them, where is Jesus or where is this uh, ruler to be, com- be coming from? And they quote from Micah 5, it's going to come from Bethlehem. For out of you, middle of the verse, verse 6, for out of you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Jesus, Herod, Jesus, Herod, Jesus, Herod, Jesus. And so Matthew just wants us to see this tension between these two kings. One who's a pseudo-king and one who's the real king. Though looked at it externally, you'd flip them, or at least the world would. Herod is mentioned to us in verse 1, almost matter-of-factly, by Matthew as someone that the readers would know. Most of us aren't particularly familiar about the kingship in that day. Herod was one of a whole line of men who had the name Herod. They were a familial dynasty, if you will. The Herod mentioned here is known elsewhere as Herod the Great. He ruled, there's a little bit of discrepancy about when he actually came to the throne, but he somewhere between 47 B.C. and 40 B.C. Most scholars think 40. I've read a few that say 47. Um, But somewhere around the year 40 B.C., he took the throne and he ruled until 4 B.C., died shortly after the birth of Jesus. He was extraordinarily wealthy. Um, That wealth was based on the back of taxes that he gathered from the Israelites. He was politically savvy. He was able to stay in the good graces of Rome for almost 40 years in ruling over Israel. Um, there, there were times in which he did good things for his people. So in the year 25 BC, there was a massive famine in Israel and he, he melted down some gold from his own home, from his own residence in order to purchase food to provide for the people. But as we think about Herod, the characteristic about Herod is that he was an extraordinarily evil and cruel man. He was not a Jew, but he was an Idumean, which meant that he was not in the line to be Messiah. He was not in line to be king over Israel. One commentator said he is a complete usurper of the throne of Israel. He's in a place where he shouldn't be. And because of that, he's constantly looking over his shoulder. Is somebody going to take it away from me? And one of the things he did in order to try and keep people from taking over the throne that wasn't, didn't belong to him was he married a woman named Mariamne who was a Jew, trying to put himself in the good graces of the Jews. But he was an angry, hostile, bitter man, fearful. He was fearful of the high priest Aristobulus, that Aristobulus was against him and going to manipulate taking away the throne away from him so he had Aristobulus the high priest drowned oh side note Aristobulus just happened to be the brother of Mariamne he killed his brother-in-law if that's not enough he also ended up killing Mariamne and two of their sons and five days before he was going to die knowing that death was imminent 
He killed another of his sons because he didn't want him to take over the throne. Of course, shortly before he died, he also, recognizing he was going to die, was fearful that people would be celebrating his death and not lamenting his death. And so he gathered a bunch of the key leaders in Jerusalem, brought them into prison, and then killed them so that there would be weeping and lament on the day of his death. Evil man. And of course we have the end of this chapter and the killing of the babies in Bethlehem. Horrifically evil man. He was empowered by Rome, subject of Rome in a sense. Caesar Augustus of Rome reportedly said that he would be rather be Herod's pig than son. A little play on words in the Greek. The word for pig is is hus or hus, and the word for son is huios. I'd rather be as hus than as huios. Rather be as pig than as son. Wicked man. Contrast that king with the king of kings who is filled with grace. So the Magi come from the east, verse 1, and they come not immediately to Herod, but all through town. You can just, the sense of verse 2 is they're just wandering around Jerusalem. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he that has been born king of the Jews? And eventually, all of their questioning gets back to Herod. They want to see the king of the Jews. The question implies, where is the legitimate king of the Jews? Because who's king of the Jews on that day? Herod. They're not asking, where's Herod? They're asking, where's the new king? Where's the real king? They're asking the question, look at the way they ask it. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They're not asking, where's the one who will be king of the Jews? They're asking the question, where is the infant who is the king of the Jews? Herod had to take that as an immediate and direct threat. And, and he did. And what he failed to understand was what so many failed to understand about Jesus. Yes, he's coming as king. Yes, he's coming to assume a literal throne in Jerusalem. But he's also coming as another kind of king, isn't he? Another political leader asks him a similar kind of question near the end of his ministry. Jesus says to Pilate, verse 36 of John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So Pilate says to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly I am a king. For, for this I have been born. Matthew 1, Matthew 2, that I was born to be king. The Magi had it right. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Now watch what he says. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I've come to take people. I've come to gather people. Not to have a, a political rulership the way you're thinking about it. But yes, to have rulership and authority and kingdom and to take people in who will be changed and transformed and freed and liberated from sin. That's why he came. He's the kind of king who sets people free. Herod was troubled, verse 3. Stirred up, agitated. Another one who is going to try and come and take his throne away from him, he thinks. So verse 7, Herod secretly calls the Magi and determined from them the exact time that he appeared. 
he's concerned about when Jesus was born. He doesn't ask the question, when, when was Jesus born? But he asks the question in a roundabout way. When did this, when did the star show up? What, tell me, tell me about that star. I mean, what, what, what did it look like? And, and when did you, when did you say that was? And we know he's trying to figure out how old Jesus was because it's on that basis, verses 16 and following, that he slew the children in Bethlehem. So he's using that as a timing device, if you will. But he's got to play it coolly. He's got to play it calmly. He can't let them know what his intentions are. And so verse 8, he sends them to Bethlehem and says, Go search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. You're going to worship him? I want to worship him too. Would you come and tell me? I can't, I can't, get, I can't break away right now. can't go with you, but... But I want to worship him too. Isn't it interesting? These men have traveled probably months. A couple thousand miles. To get there. And Herod says. I can't go ten miles. Under ten miles. To get to Bethlehem. And look with you. They said we want to come worship. He says I want to come worship. They come 2,000 miles to worship. He won't go 10. Who wants to worship? It's important at this point, helpful to us, I think, if we remember what we have said about worship. Remember the definition? Worship is delight and doing. It's being enraptured by Christ and doing the will of Christ. It's heart and action. It's internal desire and outward activity. And brothers and sisters, what we see in the story of Herod is that he has no desire for Christ. He has no desire for Christ to be his king. He wants to eradicate Christ, to do away with Christ, to kill Christ. This is... This is just one more example of the long war against God. Of people who say, I don't want to worship God, I want to be worshipped. Because what's, what's Herod's goal? Herod's goal is maintain the throne. Kill anyone who would get in his way of staying on the throne. And why be on the throne? So that he can be worshipped. He doesn't want to worship. He wants to be worshipped. Brothers and sisters, this is where where false worship always will lead you. If you don't worship Christ, you will always pursue someone, uh, pursue the attempt of someone worshipping you. I don't want to worship. I want life to terminate on me. I want everyone to focus on me. I want everyone to find their delight in me. I want to be master. I want to be sovereign. I want everyone to bow to me. That's what I think about worship. So that's one response to the coming of Jesus Christ. I reject him and I reject his authority in my life because I want authority and I want to be worshipped. And isn't it true that even as believers in Jesus Christ, when we're battling with sin, isn't that the end of our battle with sin. I, I don't want the delight that Christ offers in this moment. I'd rather have my sin. Thank you. I don't want to follow after Christ. I want to be sovereign. I want my will and I want my desires. And when we do that, we're not worshipers. We're attempting to be worshipped. We're rejecting Christ. And in that moment, we're no better than Herod. So there's one kind of worship, if you will. Herod, who wanted to be worshipped. Then there's the religionists who were apathetic about worship. In the face of the political and religious threat that Herod was perceiving, he called the religious leaders of Israel. Verse 4, gathering together all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Here's the man who's born the king of the Jews, and he doesn't even know his Bible. 
He doesn't have a clue. And, 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 and you read that and you go, huh, I wonder if they were spending some time thinking about, you know, where, you know, where, where is that in the scriptures? I, I think it's on the tip of their tongue. I, I, I think that because it appears to be common knowledge that the Messiah would be born in Israel or born in Bethlehem. The Messiah being Jewish would be born in Israel, of course. <laughs> Um, particularly he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Think about John chapter 7. The people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. And others were saying, this is the Christ, that is the Messiah. Others were still saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from, Beth- from Galilee, is he? Listen to this, verse 42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of, Beth- of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? The crowds, the common man on the street knows Messiah's coming from Bethlehem. So poor old Herod is, is absolutely clueless, leading the Jewish people and clueless about it. I don't think that, I don't think the, 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 um, the scribes and the, the chief priests hesitate for one moment when he asks the question. They know immediately, Micah 5 2. It is interesting who he gathers together. Chief priests, chief priests were the Sadducees. That would include the one who was serving at that moment as high priest. Now, historically, the one who was high priest would serve his whole life as high priest. But by the time of Jesus, it tended to cycle. It was for a period of time, but not their whole life. So he gathered the one who was high priest at that moment and probably others who had served as high priest before that one. So this is the chief of the Sadducees, if it will. They were the leading priests of the day. And he also gathered with them the scribes. These are the Pharisees. These are the ones who are not just copyists of the Old Testament, but they're the legal professionals about the Old Testament. These are the experts in the Levitical law and Old Testament law. They were the interpreters. They were the lawyers. And so Herod gathers both of them together did you catch it? He gathered together the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they were no good friend of each other. In fact, most often they wouldn't even talk together. We don't know. It's unclear from the text. It's possible that he gathered them together as one group. It's possible he saw them as two different groups. But he's bringing them in to get both sides of the story because he knows they are not going to work together to, to lie to him because they're enemies. So he knows he can get the straight scoop. And they both come and they both say the same thing. He's coming from Bethlehem, from the land of Judah. Verse 6, he's quoting from Micah 5.2. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Excuse me, leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler. Now, if you return to Micah 5.2, Micah actually reads a little bit differently in our translation. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. So Micah says, you're too little. And the leaders, religious leaders say, you're by no means least. You're not the smallest. In other words, you're the biggest. Right? So it's an understatement. By which they are intending to say the opposite. They're not saying you're little, but you're big. And so commentators are wondering, well, what's the difference? Why why do they conflate those two passages? But if you go back to Micah, what you read in Micah is is really that very same sense. And I think Micah says what he is saying in 5.2, somewhat ironically, you're by no means least. You're, You're not the littlest. In fact, as he talks about the Messiah coming, he's talking about the greatness and, and, and the significance of the Messiah in the rest of Matthew chapter 5. And so I think he's using that word too little, ironically. He, he seems to be saying, Matthew, or excuse me, Bethlehem really is not too small. And that's the exact thing that these religious leaders say. And when they said that, Herod had to think, I'm in trouble now. Not just because 
there's another one who will come and attempt to take his throne. But one of his palaces was in Bethlehem. And the place where his palace is, is the place where the real king is born. And in his head, there had to be something like, uh-oh, I got to do something about this. You know, what's fascinating about these middle verses, verses four to six, Israel had been waiting for Messiah. There had been 400 years of silence from the prophets. And these were the guys that were the experts. And when they heard, there is someone who is coming, who is claiming to be the coming Messiah. They responded with a massive and collective yawn. Yeah, Messiah's here, I guess. Yeah, he's coming from he's coming from Bethlehem. Oh, there's a baby born in Bethlehem. Oh, cool. They were massively uninterested, tremendously apathetic, absolutely indifferent. Herod asked them where the Messiah would be born. And they had to have heard the people talking in the streets about the King, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One who's been born in Bethlehem, they had to make the connection. They're absolutely uncaring. They don't ask anything more of Herod. They don't go to Bethlehem. They don't pursue him. They don't look for him. They don't attempt to get more information. They don't attempt to follow the Magi. They don't attempt to get to Jesus. They are massively uninterested. Apathetic, indifferent, Unconcerned about worshiping the Messiah. Not dissimilarly from Herod. They're not interested in submitting to and worshiping the Messiah. They didn't delight in him. And they certainly did not want his authority in their lives. And that would prove to be the breaking point, wouldn't it? Between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. Jesus was authority. And they didn't want his authority. Jesus understood the scriptures and they didn't like his interpretation of the scriptures. We don't want that kind of Messiah. And eventually. These. Perhaps these very same ones, more probably others who were following after them. By the end of the story, they're no longer apathetic about Jesus They are the enemies of Jesus. You get to the middle of the book in Matthew chapter 12. One of the key sections in understanding the book of Matthew. The crowds are amazed. Matthew 12, 23 saying this man cannot be the son of David, can he? And when the Pharisees heard this, verse 24, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They move from apathy to hatred from indifference to slander. They turned from those who didn't care about Christ to being those who were the enemies of Christ. And it was it was these men or others that followed after them that were responsible for his crucifixion. Matthew twenty six fifty nine. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. There's a danger about apathy. You can say, well, I'm not against Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there's no middle ground about Jesus. You're either his friend or or his enemy. There's no apathy about Jesus. Apathy about Jesus invariably does not stay neutral. You can't stick in the middle. C.S. Lewis, in a very oft-repeated statement, said it this way. 
I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people will often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. From his first days. He's the dividing point. You either love him. Delight in him. And obey him in worship. Or you hate him and reject him. So the religionists. Were apathetic, but they didn't stay that way, did they? They became haters of him. And that is true of all men everywhere. You must decide about Jesus. You cannot stay apathetic. There's a third group of people in the sideline here. And they are the Magi who worshipped. They're introduced to us in verse 1. We don't know much about the Magi, but we do know they weren't magicians, they weren't sorcerers, but they were more on the order of political advisors, literally wise men. Uh, These men were men who studied the stars. They were astronomers, perhaps well-versed in the scientific field. They were high-ranking officials in the government. We know from Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel, when he gets to Babylon, becomes associated with these men who become... Magi. Perhaps it was while Daniel was associated with them in Babylon that that he taught them about the Messiah. Hear me, I said it's possible. Perhaps, maybe. We don't know. But it makes sense that somebody told them about the Messiah of Israel and perhaps it was Daniel and the residual of his teaching. Because when they saw the light, when they saw the star, notice how they... Describe it in verse 2. We saw his, his star in the east. They're certain about the connection between the star, the light that they saw, and the Messiah of Israel. Now, everybody gets wrapped around the axle of the star. And there are a lot of people who say, okay, so at this time of year... You know, this thing is in the heavens and the planets are moving in this way and these stars and this and that. And brothers and sisters, we just don't know. In fact, it seems that there's a correlation between the star that they saw in verse one and the star that they saw after leaving Jerusalem to go to Bethlehem. Verse nine, after hearing the king, they went their way and the star which they had seen in the east. So the same star. And and notice the fact that the star didn't lead them from Babylon to Jerusalem. They saw the star and they knew we need to go to Jerusalem. So they saw the star. The star disappeared. They make their way to Jerusalem after seeing Herod. Now the star reappears. But we know it's not a star the way we think about a star. Because um, verse 9 The star went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Now, if you're at your house and I'm at my house, we look into the heavens and we see the same stars. And we'd say, well, that star's over my house. Well, you're six miles away and you're saying the same thing. That star's over my house. The star doesn't lead in that way. So it's something else that's leading so that it can lead to a particular location in a particular place. I think the best explanation of it is it's probably the outshining of God's glory. It's His Shekinah. And His glory, which is magnificently bright and outshines all of the stars in the heavens, led them to the particular place. So we don't know exactly what the star was. It's unclear where these men are coming from. We think probably from the area of Babylon, but we don't even know that. It just says... The Magi arrived from the east. 
Well, where in the east? I don't know. They came from the east. They came from that away. Well, how many of them came? Well, speculation is three because they came with three gifts. Well, how do we know that one wasn't particularly magnanimous and brought three or two brought three? Frankly, I think it was a whole caravan because all of Jerusalem is talking about these guys. I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, who knows? More than one and almost certainly more than three. We just don't know. What do we know about the Magi? The important thing that we need to know about the Magi is what Matthew reports. And what he reports is what they said. Verse 2. Where's he who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship. That's what we need to know. That men who probably didn't have the Old Testament law were captivated captivated by the Messiah and they wanted to worship Him. So they saw the star, they made their evaluation, they get to Jerusalem and there is no hesitation of these Gentile politicians. There's an amazing contrast here, not only between Herod and Jesus, but between the Magi and Herod and the religious leaders. All those who were in Israel and had access to the truth, some of whom knew the truth, some of whom should have known the truth, and they were completely unwilling to worship. And those who were distant to the truth were captivated by the truth that had been revealed to them. There's no hesitation. They're coming. You can just hear it in their voice, right? Remember my definition? Delight and duty? We want Him! We want to see Him! Where is He? Where is He? Where is He? And we want to do His will. Jump down to verse 10. They leave Herod, and when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew just kind of stumbles over himself trying to communicate just how happy they are. They're just overwhelmed with gratitude. Their their joy, says one commentator, knew no bounds. And their joy is over an infant born to a poverty-stricken teenage couple. Now think about this for just a minute. They serve in political arenas of huge influence in the East. They come to Jerusalem. They've just had an audience with Herod, who happens to be connected to Caesar Augustus and all of the political authority in the world. And they're captivated by the baby Jesus. They don't give Herod a second thought. He's the bystander in the story. Jesus is front and center. They want Him. And they came to the house, verse 11, and they saw the child with Mary, His mother, Jesus and Mary, and they fell to the ground and they worshipped, watch the pronoun, Him. Mary's probably holding Jesus. They saw them together. And they worshipped. But Matthew is clear to say they did not worship Mary. Why? She's not deity. She's not worthy of worship. But they worship the one who is worthy of worship. And that is Christ. They're delighted in Him. Captivated by Him. And obedient to Him. Because they worshipped, they gave gifts. Their delight turns to doing. Their delight turns to service. Their delight turns to activity. In verse 12, their delight turns to obedience. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another way. Herod gave them a command and they disobeyed it. 
The most powerful man in the region told them, I need you to do this for me. And they disobeyed. And instead followed the obedience of the revelation that came to them in the dream. Really a revelation that came from the Godhead and from Christ Himself. They obeyed. They delighted. And they did. Now here's... Here's the remarkable part of the story. Remember Matthew? We've been spending a couple of months in Matthew thinking about the revelation of King Jesus. Matthew's all about the King. Matthew's all about the Messiah who has come to take over at the throne of Israel. Matthew is written to the Jews. And the Jews in this story know the truth about the coming of the Messiah. And the first worshipers in a book written to the Jews are Gentiles. That ought to make us weep. The first worshipers, the first ones who said, give me Jesus. I want Jesus. He's my love and I want to serve him are the ones who are on the outside. And the last word that Jesus gives to the disciples in this book, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The first worshipers are Gentiles, and the last command is to go to the Gentiles. In a Jewish book. It's good news for us, isn't it? So here you've got three people called to worship. Herod, the king of Israel, king in quotations, is afraid of and hates the new king. Israel and her religious leaders are apathetic about the king. And the Gentile wise men respond to the revelation of God with faith and worship. We want Him. They delight in the King. The delight started back in the East. And I imagine they just couldn't stop talking about it all those weeks and months that they traveled. And when they finally see Him, they are not disappointed. Some gifts got opened this week and I think it was a, oh, there's going to be a, oh, thank you. And a little letdown. Because you didn't get what you thought was in the package. Not so with the Magi. They got exactly what they wanted. They delighted in Him and they obeyed Him. This is the essence of genuine worship. And it serves for a good model for us as we end this Christmas season and enter into a new year of worship of Christ. Two questions for you as we finish. Am I intentionally working to feed my delight in Christ? Are you happy in Jesus today? Are you satisfied in Him that's a separate question from do I obey? We're going to get to that question in a minute. But, but do you love Him? Are you captivated by Him? Are you satisfied with Him? That's the question that Jesus asked Peter after Peter denied Him, right? So the questions of restoration after denial are, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Do you delight in Christ? Is He your satisfaction? Is He your treasure? Second question. Because I delight in Him, do I obey Him? Do I follow where He takes me? Do I follow where He goes? I'm not necessarily thinking about, are you going to a foreign country to spare the gospel? Perhaps God's going to take you that place. Great. But are you willing to follow in the day-to-day -day things? Men, are you taking leadership in your homes in a way that God asks you to take leadership? Not just leading and saying, we're going this way, but doing so with compassion and grace that is fitting 
of the love of Christ. So that your wife says, this man is leading me, but he's leading out of love and I know I am treasured by him. Because that's the way Jesus leads us. And wives, are you following your husbands? Submitting to them, not pushing back and saying, wherever you lead, I'll go. And on and on. Are you working to obey Him? At the beginning of the message, I mentioned a commentator who I thought summarized the chapter well. What I didn't tell you then and I'm telling you now is I omitted the last sentence in what he said. Let me rehearse it. He says the primary purpose in this chapter is not to portray the king in his infancy and childhood. There's nothing in this chapter which describes Jesus himself. The leading aim is to indicate the reception given to the Messiah by the world. And then he says this. The Jews are apathetic and the Gentiles worship him. Brothers and sisters, the king has come. Come and worship. Father, thank you for this story. So familiar to us. We know it well. But might it captivate us to really delight in Christ. To not just obey, certainly he demands our obedience and should be obeyed. But to obey because that obedience is coming out of delight. And so, Father, would you be so kind to us today, not only to give us insight into this word, which you have done this morning, but also would you work in our hearts in such a way that we treasure Jesus. We just can't get over this Jesus, this Savior, this King. Might He be our delight? Might we treasure Him more than the meal we'll eat later today? Might we treasure Him more than a raise at work? Might we treasure Him more than position and standing in, at work or in the community? Might we treasure Him more than our spouses? Or the desire for a spouse? Or children? Or the desire for children? Or grandchildren? Might we treasure Him more than any possessions? Might we treasure Him above everything? And then having treasured Him, might our lives be transformed by Him so that we are obedient to Him? Father, really what we're asking is we, we want to be those like the Magi who are genuine worshipers of King Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.